Well, this morning I want to bring to you a, a special sermon, uh, a sermon on preaching that honors God, preaching that gives the most glory to the Lord, that we can give in this time uh, of, of preaching and the time that you receive the sermon at the church. Uh, I, I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 2. I won't be expositing the passage, but I think it gives us a a glimpse into Paul's mind of preaching, and then we'll come back to it later in the message. So if you want to leave a, a bookmark or a finger there, it might be helpful. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul writes, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Lord, give us this kind of holy attention to your word this morning. Let us understand the kind of preaching that honors you. Let us understand how important uh, the proclamation of your word is. Lord, I would ask that the hearers receive this message and search the scriptures to see whether it is true. And I pray that you would speak clearly through me as I show them the texts and the points of preaching that honors God. In the name of the Word, Jesus Christ, amen. Just to introduce to you how important preaching is, I want to relate to you for a moment a historical figure in church history named John Bunyan. Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, we know of him for this great work, the second most uh, important work at a, for a couple of hundred years uh, after the Bible. Uh, a Protestant would have the Bible on the shelf, and then they would usually read Pilgrim's Progress as well to their children to teach them. Well, Bunyan was a great preacher of the Puritan era as well. And after Jesus saved him, Bunyan was set apart by his church. They thought he had the gifts of teaching and preaching, so they, they set him apart for ministry of preaching the word. The only problem at the time was that the Church of England did not allow for non-licensed, non-Anglican churches to preach the word. And so it wasn't long uh, before they found Bunyan out in the fields preaching sometimes to thousands of people that would come out to hear God's truth. And Bunyan continued even when he was threatened. He was eventually put in jail. And after his three-month term, they told him he could go free. All he had to do was stop preaching the Bible. He said he could not stop preaching the Bible. That's what God had put upon his heart to do. The Anglican church had, had distorted many things in Scripture, and they were, they were making the tradition of man to be higher than the Word at times. And, and Bunyan and the Puritans felt like the Bible just needed to be opened up and preached. So he spent another term, and then they would ask him, do you want to go? They would say, 
You know, your wife and four children cannot feed themselves. They're barely making it. If you just stop preaching, you can go home and take care of them. And they would remind him of his blind daughter who was 12, who was struggling just to make it in the world at that time. And he would say that he would not stop preaching. He spent 12 years in prison simply for wanting to preach the word. When he was finally released, he got out and continued to preach. The laws changed a bit. They arrested him again, put him in for a time. And then he had the last 20 years of his life free to preach the word in churches and outside of churches, wherever he pleased. Bunyan refused, though, to stop preaching the word. He was convicted by the Spirit, convicted in his conscience that would not allow him to change the message to suit the authorities, and it would not allow him to stop preaching the Bible. It would dishonor God, he thought, to do so, and it would dishonor his Lord. And today, when we look at preaching, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of preaching honors God? What kind of preaching was a man like this willing to spend 12 years, 12 years in jail? Was he just a stubborn old guy who refused to obey the law? Or did he love God's word so much that he was willing to do that so that eventually he could preach the truth to everyone? Well, expository preaching is our regular diet here. If you're, if you're new with us, expository preaching is when we go verse by verse through texts of Scripture. And I, I open those up and I explain them to you. But occasionally, occasionally I might do a short series, somewhat more thematic or theological. And not really topical, although this certainly is a topic that we're looking at today. But not topical in the sense of just telling stories and backing it up with verses but topical in the sense that we're going to take a major doctrine and just look at what Scripture has to say about it. So normally we'll be in the Gospel of Luke looking at verse after verse. In fact, I was kind of in a short series on the warnings to believers found in Luke chapter 12. But sometimes a standalone sermon or or a short series is necessary for the life of the church. Maybe it's an important issue because of world events. Maybe it's an, an important local issue. And sometimes just during times of confusion, times where there's a lot of confusion in the church as a whole and even in local churches, we need to address certain subjects. So that's my goal today is to, uh, the latter reason really, there's so much confusion out there on preaching. And I felt compelled this week to just give you a message on preaching that honors God. You know, biblical preaching is out of season in the land today. It's out of season, really, in the world. I mean, there are certainly true churches preaching the word, but as a whole, we've turned, especially in Western culture, away from the Bible, away from biblical preaching. It's out of season, and it's no longer in season, if it ever was, and it's missing from so many churches. When biblical preaching is present within a church, there's often a constant pressure, even, to modify it, to change it, to drift away from it. We have to watch all of us, our own hearts in this. But we have to stand firm. We have to hold to what Scripture says. We have to do our best to be faithful and and, and teach it and preach it. You have to do your best uh, to believe it. You have to live by the Spirit, submitting yourself to Scripture. 
So because of those reasons, I want to give you today uh, four elements found in preaching that honors God. I do not propose that these are the only four elements. There would probably could think of other four elements, but these are four elements that right now uh, in the life of our church, uh, being two years in and having not really touched on this issue of preaching in some time, uh, these are the four elements that I think we need to remember and look at in Scripture. Honoring God, glorifying Him is what we're here to do. That's our purpose as believers. That's our purpose as a church. And so let's look at these four elements found in preaching that honors God. And let's ask ourselves if that's what we truly want individually. And also, I want you to see where our church is headed on this, where we've always been, where we're at now, and actually where we'll always be, Lord willing, on these four issues. First of all, preaching that honors God is grounded in the Bible. Preaching that honors God is grounded in the Bible. Preaching must always have the Word of God. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that uh, preaching apart from the Word of God is nothing. It's the preacher's opinion. Without the Word of God, I'm just up here telling you what I think, what I feel, my opinions, my experiences. The Word of God has to be the grounds, the basis of preaching. Uh, Preaching always has to be founded, and at its core, when you search it out, when you look through the message, it ought to have the Word of God in it. You know what Jesus came to do? He came to do a lot. But there are specific verses in the Bible that tell us what He came to do. He came to, to seek and to save that which is lost, the people, sinners. Yes, we know that. But also, he told us in Luke 4, we looked at that in in the last year, I think, here. Uh, Luke 4, he quoted from Isaiah, and he told the people, he told the Jews why he came. Again, not the only reason he came, but it was a major purpose that he came for. Let me just read to you the, the, the words of Jesus quoting from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. How many times did you hear preach, proclaim? I count at least three there. No, four. Three or four, depending on how you break up the text. Issues, points, main focuses that Jesus came to proclaim. He was the exemplary preacher. He was the one who brought the good news. He was the one who interpreted God's word that had already been written, the Old Testament. He's the one who interpreted it properly. He's the one who would send apostles, messengers of his, to continue preaching the truth. Jesus was a preacher and we ought to look for him as examples. And you know what he did there in that sermon? He quoted from the Old Testament and he applied it to himself. He used God's word as the foundation for that sermon in the synagogue. Paul, when writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 said, Preach the word in season and out of season. Whether it's popular or not popular, he's to preach what? The word. The Word of God. Paul didn't say to Timothy, preach on your thoughts and feelings of Christ. 
Preach your feelings about God. Preach your experience of being a Christian. Yes, those things will make their way into a sermon. You can't be unmoved by Scripture if you study it and preach it. Your, your feelings, thoughts, and experiences will come out as a teacher, as a preacher. But those are not what he said to preach. Preach the Word. Preach the Word, the Word of God, the written Scriptures, the Bible. That's the foundation. And he goes on to say, reprove. Use the word and preach it to reprove, to, to turn people from their sinful ways. Believers, preach the word to believers and turn them. That hurts. Reprove, we don't always like that. Rebuke, that's tell somebody to stop doing what you're doing. We don't like that sometimes as believers. And encourage. We often like to be encouraged, but again, he's encouraging from preaching of the word. Whenever you join our church, you may remember, if you're in the class that I'm teaching now, we went through it the first day. After covering a high view of God, you know the second core value that we look at? A high view of Scripture. Every new member, every person that wants to learn about our church can see this on our website, but every new member is told that on the first day of class, the Bible is totally sufficient to live the Christian life for all counsel and wisdom. It is the sole authority for the church. It is relevant in every situation, contains all sound doctrine, and mandates the teaching of this sound doctrine in the church. If I ever was to bring a message and not have the Bible at at its foundation and throughout, then you should speak to me about that afterwards. Lord willing, that will never happen. But here is our core value number two that everyone knows when they join. Steve Lawson summarizes preaching. This is a a man who knows how to preach, if you've ever heard him. He says, The man of God opening the word of God and expounding its truths so that the voice of God may be heard, the glory of God seen, and the will of God obeyed. That's what preaching is. It's God's voice being heard through the scriptures, the glory of God being seen as you take that in, and then the will of God obeyed. Preaching that honors God is really synonymous with biblical preaching. What kind of preaching honors God? Biblical preaching. Preaching that's grounded in the word. Not every word that the preacher says is going to be scripture. That's scripture reading. But he takes it and he opens it up and he explains it. And he oftentimes helps you to apply it. But doesn't preaching so much from scripture, this is what you hear sometimes, doesn't it? take people away from God and and instead to a book? Do we run the danger here when we preach the word of putting too much emphasis on the Bible? That's a question that's often out there. You you often hear the term uh, bibliolatry, a worship of the Bible. I think that's really a term people use when they don't want to obey scripture. And they sometimes throw out bibliolatry, worship of the word. We don't worship the word, but it is how God speaks to us we, we can't elevate the bible more than god has already done i mean how can we elevate the bible more than god does it's his word let me just read to you from his word psalm 138 verse 2 david writes you have magnified your word your translation might say exalted you have magnified your word according to all your name 
Some translations say promise or word. Whatever God says, he himself has elevated that because it's the very words of God. How can we elevate the Bible more than God when he himself has told us it is magnifying? God has revealed himself to us through the word. And without the word, we'd be lost as Christians. We'd be lost as an unbeliever. And I'll make that case for you in a moment. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you're married. Most of you are. And let's say that you tell me that you love your spouse. I mean, you just love your spouse so much. And I ask you, so you, you listen to her when she's talking and you say, oh no, I never listen to my wife. Don't get any ideas, guys. Or ladies. I never listen to my husband, but I love them. And then all they do is talk about their wife, but they don't listen to what's being said. That's not a healthy marriage. That's not a close relationship. And we do that to God when we say, I love God, I love Jesus, I love the gospel, but I'm not such a big fan of the Bible. The preaching of the word has to be there. The living by the word has to be there. It would be a terrible thing for God to tell us, give him glory, which he does, and then not tell us how to do that. Sometimes the Bible gets a bad rap. It's just a guidebook, sometimes people say, and and that is attacked. But it is. It's a guidebook for Christians on how to live a godly life. Does it contain the gospel? It does. Is it a proclamation of the gospel? It is. It tells you both how to be saved and what to do once you've been saved. God doesn't just leave us. You've been justified. Now figure it out. He has given us his word. Imagine a God that would just leave us to figure things out on our own. That's what the ancients feared the most, that they would displease their false God by messing up because they had no clue what to do in life. God hasn't done that. He's given us the truth. Whoever keeps his word, John says, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. We can't say that we love God and that we love Christ with all our heart and then somehow diminish the word. This is a book. It's made of, mine's got some rather nice leather on it. Somebody got me. It's a nice printing, but it's actually the words that give life. It's, it's the, the words in scripture, whether it's printed on this paper or another type of paper. We don't bow down to the book, but the book tells us, because it's God's word, it tells us how to live, what to do, how to glorify him. You know, that's what the Reformation was all about. Yes, it was about the gospel that had been corrupted, though. Why had the gospel been corrupted? Why had justification been corrupted? Why had faith alone and Christ alone been corrupted? They had elevated man's tradition over the word and through their translation and through their teaching had twisted and corrupted the word. The Catholic Church had done that and the reformers came along and they said, ad fontis, back to the sources, back to the Bible to find the gospel, to find worship, to find how to glorify God. Let's go back to the original Greek, back to the original Hebrew and preach the Bible and not man's tradition. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. So don't just talk about what you think of Christ 
That's great if you can do that, but show me in the Bible. Show unbelievers in the Bible where Christ is. Talk to believers in the Bible. That's the true and enduring word. If you just talk about Christ outside the scriptures, it won't take many generations before that's corrupted. Even within your own generation, you know of people who say they love Christ and they don't have a clue what scripture is teaching them. You know, I said that people can't even get saved without hearing the word because the gospel is in the word of God. It is the word of God. Uh, today, a lot of people kind of throw around the term gospel. They, they, they misuse it. But the gospel's good news. It's good news about Christ. It's good news about his person and his work. And it's found only in the word of God. If somebody tells you an accurate explanation of the gospel, then it's the gospel that's found in the word. And oftentimes we, we throw this term around. We're all kind of guilty of it. We are a, a gospel-centered church, but sometimes that term gets applied everywhere on every book and every blog, and it can be, become meaningless if we don't watch it. The gospel is not a magical formula that, that you just put on a book or a blog or, or something you make, and it gives you <coughs> blessings. It's not like that. You know, these shower curtains and coffee cups that have little words on them from the Bible. That doesn't really do anything for you, right? It can remind you of something, but gospel is not a magical formula. It's, it's a message found in the word of God. We don't have Jesus and the apostles walking around out here telling us the gospel. We've got to go to the word to make sure that it's pure. You can hear it from somebody else, from the radio, from the internet, but it's got to be according to the word. Romans 10 Verse 17, Paul makes this case of how they ought to be sending preachers and how can somebody hear without a preacher? And he concludes by saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's so important to God that he puts it in the process of your salvation. You've got to hear the word of Christ some way or read it or be told it by a friend, a family member. It's got to come into your life, the word of Christ, the word of God. So let's not sling around gospel-centered this and gospel-centered that and not be able to show people where the gospel is in the scriptures. Or Christ-centered. You will find Christ-centered on our website. I believe we are a Christ-centered church. But let's not throw the term around without being able to even show people where Christ is in the scriptures. The Bible is essential in preaching. It's essential in preaching that honors God. If the preacher does not lift up the scriptures for you in the sermon, he has nothing to say but his opinion. Not only is uh, God honored, though, when we preach from the Bible, but also number two, God is honored when preaching is Trinitarian. God is honored when preaching is Trinitarian. Biblical preaching is, emphasize the persons and work of the whole trinity god the son our lord jesus christ he's the one who performed the glorious work on the cross you would not even be here as a believer if not for christ he redeemed us he bought us he shed his blood for us he took upon our sins he gave us his righteousness he did that work and if we trust in him then we have eternal life, eternal life with the Father, 
eternal life with the Son, eternal life with the Spirit. If you repent of your sins, you will have that. Yet, as great as that is, preaching does not only focus on the Son's redemptive work. The things I just explained to you are the work of Christ, His his redemptive work. Not every sermon focuses necessarily on that work and ignores the rest of the Bible's teaching on the Father and the Spirit. Preaching that honors God preaches on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not just in the same sermon, doesn't have to always be that way, but in general, because that's how the Bible focuses us to a Trinitarian triune God. Some critics of God-centered biblical preaching would have us only emphasize the Son and His redemptive work in Scripture. Never preaching God the Father or the Holy Spirit. But over time, preaching just reminds us of what Christ did for us, but doesn't teach us the other aspects of the Godhead. You know, the gospel is not just good news about God the Son. But it's good news about God the Father. It's good news about God the Spirit. The gospel's good news about how Father, Son, and Spirit loved us from before the creation of the world. I put a plan in place to save sinners and accomplished it and continues to persevere us in the faith. The Father sent the Son as one and only Son. I mean, that is part of the gospel. Jesus died, it says, to bring us to the Father. I mean, what was Jesus' purpose? To preach the good news. What was part of the good news? John 1.18. No one has seen God, the Father, at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, the, the one who's been born fully God, fully man. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. This one, He has explained Him, God the Father. The only one that can properly explain the Father to us is the Son. And so he came into the world to do that. The word explain there meaning exegete, interpret, properly tell us the truth about the Father. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. That's what he did, but why did he do it? So that he might bring us to God. The Father. That's the purpose of what he did. He says, First Peter, Peter says, Christ died for sinners. Why? So that he might bring us to God the Father. Go to Second Corinthians five eighteen. If you want to hold your spot in First Corinthians two, do that. But Second Corinthians five eighteen. I think it's one of the richest parts of Scripture describing the gospel and justification. Second Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Now all these things are from God. God the Father is the idea here. Who reconciled us to Himself. God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he describes what that ministry is. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the the gospel could be described simply as God reconciling man to himself. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God, so you just see this Christ and God the Father connected together. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to who? To God, the Father. And then he explains what that looks like. He made, God the Father made him who knew no sin, Jesus the Son, to be sin on our behalf. He took on sin on our behalf on the cross. The purpose so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. What's the purpose of justification? So that we might become the righteousness of God the Father in Christ. We could never leave out God the Father in preaching. Uh, he, he created and it sustains the world. He elects and adopts unto salvation. He irresistibly calls us by His grace. He changes the hearts of believers. He grants repentance. The Father who is reconciling us to the world, He works in us to will and do His good pleasure. That's just what God does, His acts. But what about His person? We don't even have time to, to look at his attributes, who he is, what we can learn of him through the word. So preaching ought to focus on the Father, but also the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? He, he regenerates us. He fills us. He gives us spiritual gifts. He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. He permanently indwells us. He seals us. He illuminates the scriptures for us. He sanctifies us. That's just what he does for us. That's not even talking about the Spirit as a person who is who He is, His deity. The Scripture is full of that teaching. The point of preaching is to open up the Holy Scriptures of our triune God and to exhort us to submit to those very Scriptures. Even the Scriptures are are a work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this God-centered preaching in his mind when he preached. He, He wrote, What is the chief end of preaching? I like to think it is this. It is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. I can forgive a man a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God, of the majesty and the glory of God. That's the purpose of the Scriptures, to to glorify God, to help us glorify God. But didn't Paul say he, he preached Christ and Christ only crucified? Remember that passage? 1 Corinthians, right? I said we were going back there. Go back to 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I I only want to preach Christ and Christ crucified. You see that in verse 2? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul's not meaning those are the only two subjects he ever preached. Look at verse 1. Now, this is a letter to the Corinthians. It's what he would have said to them in a sermon if he was there. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God the Father. He he came proclaiming the testimony of God the Father. So it's not like when he said, I preach Christ, that he never mentioned God the Father or the Holy Spirit. In fact, look down at verse 5. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God the Father. And then now look back at verse 4. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So right there in that one paragraph, we've got the Father, Son, and Spirit all included. He's just giving them a summary of the message of the gospel that he preached when he first came there. 
the message which they were saved by. And it's not all inclusive of everything. It's just a general summary. He doesn't mean, I should say it's not exclusive of everything. It is inclusive of everything that he preached. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the resurrection is part of the gospel. And he doesn't say he preached on the resurrection. Just Christ and him crucified. So let's not uh, be so specific on one verse that we don't see what's around it. Let's avoid this idea that only Christ's work is to be preached. Let's preach the scriptures, the triune God. There's something called Christomanism, a term developed recently, which is defined as an over-exaggerated focus on the work of Christ for individuals. Now that sounds like, how could that even be? But here's the key. To the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. The view that every sermon must be on the redemptive work of Christ on the cross all the way through the sermon, especially at the end. But I argue, hopefully I've done so from Scripture, that our preaching ought to be a triune. Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. He said if He didn't leave, the Spirit wouldn't come. He taught on the Spirit. Our Scripture ought to be honoring to, our preaching ought to be honoring to God because it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we preach on. Thirdly, preaching that honors God is faithful to the text. When a passage is preached, it should be interpreted and explained in keeping with the Spirit-inspired meaning that was intended. Now, I'm not going to make this a lesson on hermeneutics, but I want to just give you a quick overview. The sermon's not driven by man's own interpretation. If it is, you can do whatever you want with the passage and argue that it's right. It's driven, the interpretation and the preaching of that text is driven by the intended meaning of the God-inspired author of that text. The sermon ought to be faithful to what God wrote it for. I'm speaking again of the proper principles of hermeneutics in exegesis. The set of principles shown throughout Scripture that guides us to interpret correctly the Bible. Whenever you are thinking about preaching, hopefully after this sermon you'll have some definition of it. But whenever you're speaking with others about preaching, maybe the type of church they go to, the type of preaching they like to listen to online, it's important that you ask them, how would you define preaching? You ever get into a Christian conversation, you think you're talking about the same thing, and then at the end you realize you're not even talking about the same thing, but you use the same word like preaching, gospel, Christ, you could talk to Jehovah's Witness about Christ, but if you don't establish up front the differences, then it's going to be a problem. Well, that, that is important on other issues. Just because it's not heresy doesn't mean we shouldn't define our terms. What is preaching? I want to incorporate a, a definition that includes this faithful idea, being faithful to the Word as God inspired it. Mark Dever, prominent pastor, leader of Nine Marks, says expositional preaching is, is preaching which... The main point of the Bible text being considered becomes the main point of the sermon being preached. So whatever the text main point is, that ought to come out in the sermon. And if it doesn't, we have a problem. If I don't explain and make the main application the point of the text, there is a problem. John MacArthur says, By expositional preaching, I mean preaching in such a way that the meaning of the Bible passage 
the meaning of the Bible passage is presented entirely and exactly as it was intended by God. To go outside the intent of Scripture, to make a, a passage mean something else that God didn't intend is, is dangerous. It's dangerous to our sanctification. It can be dangerous to an unbeliever's potential for salvation. Peter wrote about this in his second epistle. He said that men were men who were unstable and untaught were coming into the church and they were distorting and twisting the scriptures. You know this happens. You've seen denomination fall into liberalism. You've seen the ways that friends and family can drift off. Untaught and unstable people come into the church. They twist it. He goes on to say that be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. You want to know why it's so easy to fool real believers sometimes on theology? You want to know why Christian bookstores are filled with so many non-Christian books? They say they're Christian, but it's not. You might think, well, that's because there's a lot of unbelievers posing as Christians. And okay, I grant that that might be true in some areas. But for a true believer to be fooled, it usually comes down to not being able to interpret the Scripture for themselves. That's, again, the Reformation was about every plowboy being able to read the Bible for himself. First, you've got to get it in your own language, and then you've got to have some understanding to interpret it. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to get a de- degree in hermeneutics. But you've got to read it, be part of a church, learn how to interpret it correctly. I think that's why so many people are often fooled by these books and theologies out there. Of all the people in the church, though, the elders, the teachers in the church must properly understand how to get to the meaning of the text and then explain that. James puts a heavy burden on us as teachers. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That's scary. Men and ladies who want to teach in the ladies' ministry, this is a, a verse that's scary. I mean, you will be judged and really a harder judgment because you proclaimed yourself as a teacher. You stood up before a group of people. I stand up before the church every week and I have to stand before God someday. And James says, be careful. Be careful. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent, again, speaking of how careful we ought to interpret Scripture according to its original meaning, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The old King James said, accurately dividing the word of truth. We've got to be careful that when we handle Scripture, that the workman of God is, is going to be approved someday and not be shamed before our Creator because we mishandled His Word. It's shameful, Paul's saying. It's, it's shameful. It doesn't honor God to do that. Now, most Sunday morning preaching here and most Christian churches will be from the New Testament. And it's somehow going to connect to the gospel in Christ by application. If it's in the New Testament, we would expect that it's going to point to Christ, be the words of Christ, be about His life, be about His work, His person. And sometimes the main point of the text will be His redemptive work. But not every text in the New Testament is about the cross, the blood, and the gospel. Now, if you've never heard that before, I want to 
I want to give you some examples. Because sometimes folks might say, well, if the gospel is not in it, then it's not a Christian sermon. I guess it would depend on what the gospel is defined as. Uh, You might hear if the cross isn't there, then it's not a Christian sermon. Matthew 5 through 7 is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, what's the intent of the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5 through 7, three chapters in the Bible. It's a large section, a long sermon of Jesus. You can search through it and read it. I, I didn't find anything on his death, anything on the cross, anything on his burial, anything on his resurrection. That's what Paul calls the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. I know it can be used broadly, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the gospel includes his death, burial, and resurrection according to the scriptures. But you won't find that by Jesus' own words in Matthew 5 through 7. So what is Jesus intending us to get when we read that passage? Well, the point of the sermon is that he's instructing his disciples on how to live as citizens of the kingdom in this world how to live as a follower of his you can just look at the last verse seven uh, matthew seven twenty four. here's the conclusion of the sermon on the mount therefore based on everything i've said previously in this sermon therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock what's the key everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. He's speaking to professing believers. He's speaking to his disciples. And he's saying, now that you've been saved by your faith in me, live it out according to what I teach. Live it out. Charles Spurgeon has uh, famously said that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And then so from every text in Scripture, there's a road toward the great metropolis, Christ. That's very true. From anywhere in Scripture, you can get to Christ on that road. I would agree with him. But let's not take that further than what Scripture does within itself. Not every road looks the same, does it? Not every road has the same mountains and valleys, the same curves. And not every sermon covers the whole road of Scripture. That's not the way that the preachers in the Bible always did it. The preacher's not obligated to cover the whole trip down the road in every sermon because God himself did not see fit to put the whole trip in every passage from the little town to London, from this Leviticus all the way to Christ. Are there connections from Leviticus to Christ? You bet there is. And a New Testament church ought to be applying those passages to that reality. But God didn't see fit to put the whole New Testament crammed into Leviticus. I came across a story recently that illustrates this point. There's a pastor teaching a group of children. And he says to them, I'm thinking of one of the animals that lives in the forest. So he's he's working up an illustration for his teaching. And he wants them to guess at the animal. This animal is small. It's gray. It has a bushy tail. Now, do you know who I mean? And the kids don't answer. And, and the forest, he says, this little forest friend, he's shy and he, and he scampers up a tree when you get too close. And the children are still silent. They're scared to give an answer. 
And the pastor says he looks, he likes to bury his nuts in the ground. Surely you know who I'm talking about. And finally, one brave little kid speaks up and he says, I know you want us to say Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. And we can laugh at that, but we have to realize that sometimes the answer to the question that's asked of you is Jesus. But sometimes the answer is God the Father, who created the world, who elected and adopted. Sometimes it's the Spirit is the right answer to the question that you're asked. Sometimes it's how to live the Christian life, how to obey God. Sometimes it's about our sin. Do all those things relate to Christ? They do. They do. But each passage, each text has its own intended meaning that God put it there for. God did not see fit to just repeat the story of the redemptive work in every single text. The scripture is broad. It's beautiful. It is a grand work that has many pathways and many interconnections like a web. Well, there are one through three. Preaching that honors God is from the Bible. Preaching that honors God is Trinitarian. Uh, Preaching that honors God is faithful to the text. There is a fourth one, but I'm going to save it for next week because it's too long to cover and the rest of our time this morning. But I'll give it to you already. Preaching that honors God is edifying. Edifying. It builds up. And it's really what we're here for every Sunday. And that one's so important that I'd be glad to take the whole next sermon and open it up for you. Whenever we hear the word of God, whenever I preach the word of God, it needs to honor God. It needs to be done rightly. It needs to be done in a way that's in accordance with who God is and his will for preaching. He's the one who designed preaching. He's the one who made it the means by which the word goes out. And so I charge you as as this church, I charge the elders, the, the deacons, the members of this church, don't ever let the Bible play second fiddle in the regular preaching of this church. It always needs to be prominent. It always needs to be part of the teaching and preaching here. It doesn't need to be diminished. It would be dishonoring to God to do that. And we dare not do that. So we call ourselves a biblical church. Let's be a biblical church. God, we love you so much. And we know that your word is a precious gift to us. We would be lost without it. And help us to see how important it is. Uh, never to never to separate the word from you, always to keep it with you because it's your word and you've magnified it and you've given it for life and you've given it for faith. Let us submit ourselves humbly to it. And we do ask that you would help us to do this by your spirit's power. Amen.